Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Let me know if you know anyone that has these characteristics or like this, okay? Um, they're loyal, yet they always question. There's always a question about anything and everything, but they're loyal to you, but they're going to question it. Or maybe they're devoted, but they're a little pessimistic. You may consider the Debbie Downer of the group because they're just, they're, they call themselves realists, but they're pessimistic. They're loyal to you. They'll be with you, but they're pessimistic. How about they're honest, yet they haven't learned how to be very tactful with the way they come across it. Or in other words, they're blunt, uh, outspoken. They're not scared to say what others are thinking. They're courageous until they get hurt. Is that, if, if you don't know anyone like that, if, if you're drawing a blank, then you're that person. Okay? You, just, you just need to come to grips that you're that person. But all of those characteristics are, is describing an apostle. An apostle that's normally not known for those things. He's known for one statement he makes, one other characteristic that he got this name. The nickname he got was Doubting Thomas. So I want to challenge you tonight. I want us to look at the scripture of this and see if it really was doubt. If that is a good attribute to give to him. Or if we should give him something else. Because I don't believe his real identity was in his doubts. But I believe that through his doubts, he got a real identity. Just like we will get a real identity through our doubts. So turn with me to John chapter, chapter 20. Starting in verse 24. And we're going to run. We'll read, go ahead and read the passage. And then we'll come back and dissect it a little bit. So... John chapter 20, start in verse 24, and we'll run all the way to 31. It says, Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Jesus did many other miracle signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So just to kind of paint the picture of where we are in the story. Jesus was born in a manger. We just celebrated that through Christmas. Shepherds came to visit him. Wise men came to visit him. He was born of this miraculous birth, filled with the Holy Spirit. He spent the next, you know, 33 years being a minister, creating a ragtag group of people to follow him, becoming their teacher, their rabbi. 
There were good Jewish people that would follow him and they were looking for counsel. They were looking for some direction and they found it in this man named Jesus. Jesus told them on multiple occasions that he would be delivered to death and to the grave. He would be crucified, but yet he would come back again. And he kept telling them over and over again to trust in him, trust in God, that he was here for the kingdom of heaven, that he was bringing the kingdom of heaven at hand, to have faith. Just to have the faith of a mustard seed and that you can have all of these things, but you've got to have faith. And he did exactly as he's told. He, after the third year of ministry, around 33 to 34 years old, he comes in Jerusalem. He walks in in a parade just, and they followed him. But then he's handed over to the Roman authorities and he is persecuted, he is beaten, he is humiliated, and he's hung on a cross for everyone to see to his death. And then three days later, when they put him in the grave and they roll the tomb around, it's empty. The ladies come and visit him to kind of create, bring more fragrance, bring more of the ointments to his body, and they see it, and it's gone. And they go back, and they tell the disciples, and they run to the disciples, Jesus is not the tomb. Some of the disciples ran back to the tomb. There was a foot race between John and Peter and Mark. And depending on who you read, they're going to tell you they won. But they ran back and saw an empty tomb. Then, on the words of these women, they walk away. When Mary Magdalene says, He came and visited me. I got to see Him. He wouldn't let me touch Him, but I got to see Him. He has risen like He said He would. So the disciples, all but one, are two. There was twelve to begin with. Judas, who betrayed Him betrayed Jesus, betrayed the group. He was no longer with them anymore. So they all gathered together to figure out what to do. Probably back to the place that they had Jesus at that last supper, that upper room where Jesus washed their feet. The moment of memory that they wanted to continue to live out, not what they saw on the cross, but what they saw with Jesus serving. The last happy moment that they could have, they went back there, all of them, but Thomas. And so while they're in the room, the ten of them sitting in the room, Jesus appears to them and says, Peace be with you. For you see my nail, the, my nail-scarred hands. You see my side where I was pierced. It is me. Then he delivers them the commission to go out and share others with what they have seen, what they had heard, to continue the ministry that Jesus started when he, three years ago, when he took them in. Not to start something new, but continue the movement of repentance for the kingdom of heaven. And they are excited. But in a blink of a eye, just as quickly as Jesus came to them, Jesus disappeared. So naturally, if you were one of those ten, you would be excited, right? You would be telling everyone, this is the beloved master, the rabbi, the one that you have spent your life and committed your life, you've left everything behind, came back. What he said was true. All the prophecies are fulfilled. Everything was there. And at some point, Thomas shows up. We don't know if it was later that day. We don't know if it was a day later, 
two days later. But it doesn't matter. We don't know if the disciples went and grabbed Thomas and found him where he was fishing or hiding or whatever. They said, we saw him. See, there's a lot to this passage that we really can't see unless you look deep. So starting back with that first verse of 24. It says, Now Thomas, known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Have you ever asked the question? Because I, I haven't asked this question until this week when I started studying. Why wasn't Thomas there? Have you ever thought about that? Why wasn't he there? He was one of the twelve. He was one of the apostles. He was part of the dodeca, the group the elected group to follow Jesus. They were together. They were inseparable. For three years, they followed around. They slept in the same places, ate in the same places, had conversations, multiple. Where was Thomas? I think we all kind of assumed that they would have stayed together. We would have assumed that if if they saw Jesus, heard Jesus, and touched Jesus, they would have wanted to continue that community. When they experienced all those miraculous events, they would have wanted the community. But Thomas is not there. Now, just to give you a little background on who Thomas was, we find out from this passage, Thomas is also called Didymus, which is Greek for twin. He was a twin. Kind of like our pastor. If he was here tonight, I was going to call him out and say, how was it like being a twin? They battle all the time, right? Twins battle, what I've heard. They play together. If they're like my two boys who are seven years apart, they play nice together and they play rough together. They like each other one minute, they, like, they don't like each other the next minute. I can imagine as twins, when you have to share everything from the time you are created, you got to share everything. So he's a twin. Now we could, I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, so I can't go into a deep psychological movement of what a twin is, but that's what I'm speculating, okay? Is it okay if I speculate just a little bit? Okay. But he's a twin, so we've got that against him. He's a fisherman. We discover that later on because after this event in John chapter 21, he's with Peter, James, and John on a fisherman, on a fishing boat. They're fishing. So he was a fisherman. You know, so that means he didn't grow up with a lot of money, working hard, worked for somebody, He wasn't like James and John who owned a fishing company. He wasn't like Peter that probably owned or worked with them. He was just a regular old fisherman. When he saw Jesus, he immediately was attracted to Jesus and named him a rabbi. Thomas was a Jewish boy. He had that understanding. And as a Jewish boy, when you're brought up in the synagogue, what you're taught is when you get of age, you need to find a teacher. You find someone to follow. You find someone you can ask questions to. You find someone that you can listen to. You find someone to give you direction. You find something. You seek it out. And when you find that person, you follow that person no matter what they go. When you claim that he's your rabbi, he's your rabbi. It's a commitment. It's a covenant. And that's what these 12 had come. They had called Jesus a rabbi. So we find out that he trusted his teacher. He trusted him to the point that he was courageously devoted to him. Even to the point when they were going into Jerusalem, when they were coming back to Jerusalem, when it wasn't safe. In John chapter 11, you know the story of when they're going to see Lazarus. They're going and 
all of the disciples are like, Jesus, I don't know if we need Lazarus. And, and the messenger was like, Lazarus is sleeping. So they were like, okay, well, well, if he's sleeping, he'll get better. They're giving up all these excuses. He'll get better. And then Jesus is finally like, no, y'all, he's, he's, he's dead. He died. And then they're like, oh, well, nothing we can do about it now. But Thomas, Thomas stands up and Thomas goes, let us all go. Let us go die with Jesus. That's some pretty courageous devotion. Something that the other disciples didn't say. Peter, the loud mouth, puts his foot in his mouth a lot, didn't say that. He's not the one that stood up and said, let's go follow Jesus into this could be death. No, Thomas was like, let's go. I'm ready. We got snacks. Some would call him the ride or die guy. It doesn't matter where Jesus was going, Thomas was going to be right behind him. Maybe asking questions, but he was there. Didn't matter where. Because even later on, we see that he's, he, he's not scared to talk about his misunderstanding of what Jesus said. Because the night before Jesus washes their feet, he looks at them and he says, Do not, do not be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me, for I have prepared a place for you. And Thomas goes, but Jesus, teacher, rabbi, where is this place? We don't know where you're going. We thought you were going to die coming into Bethlehem, Bethany to see Lazarus, and that didn't happen. So we don't know where you're going now, but wherever you're going, we'll find it. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, Thomas, he, he wasn't afraid to admit that he was a skeptic. He wasn't afraid to admit that he didn't understand something. He was very honest with all of those things. You see, as long as he had Jesus, as long as Thomas could see Jesus, his plan was working out. He had a vision for what Jesus was. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the Christ. He had heard Peter talk about that. He had heard James and John argue about who was going to be highest and the greatest. He had heard all of those things and he had decided that Jesus was bringing in the kingdom of heaven and he didn't want to miss out. If he needed to die to get to the kingdom of heaven, he was willing to die for it. But something happened. Jesus died and he didn't. Everything that he had worked up in his brain, every conception he had about who Jesus was, how Jesus was, all of his faith was now in question because his rabbi went to the cross and died and he stayed alive. Confusion set in. His security had vanished. Everything he believed in growing up had slowly went away. Created doubts, right? I don't know about you, but that's kind of been my 21. Every time I feel like I've gotten a grasp of something, something else comes along and takes it away. Anytime we get a little bit of news and we feel like we're going in this direction, we get pulled in the opposite, right? 
Doesn't matter where you turn. It doesn't matter if you, whatever news channel you watch, it's going to happen. It doesn't matter if you made the vow to turn off all news like some people did. It's still going to happen. It didn't matter what kind of came up. It felt like everything that I had thought went away. Everything that I had believed in, everything that I have done the last 38 years of my life, everything that I had thought about in the last 20 years of my ministry, everything changed. And the problem was, you started thinking about it, right? And when you start creating doubts, you start moving yourself away. But you started doubting because you got disappointed. You see, doubt comes from that disappointment. That's the first thing that usually happens. When something doesn't go our way, when something is not going according to our plan, we get scared. So I believe that the reason Thomas was not with the disciples, I believe it could be one of these several things, but I think he was afraid because it says in, earlier, in the earlier verses that the disciples were gathered together in fear of what the Jews were going to do. They were scared. They locked the door. Nobody was coming in. They thought the Jews, the Pharisees, were coming after them to get rid of the name of Jesus and all that was. Could he be afraid? Maybe. Sounds like a reasonable thing. You're an outlaw. You don't gather with other outlaws. I don't, I've seen a lot of movies and that's usually what happens. After an event happens and you become an outlaw, you scatter. You spread out. You do not go back to where you were. That's the number one mistake you make to get arrested. Don't go back there. You just leave. So he could have been afraid. He could have been frustrated. Could have been frustrated. Everything he had thought of, every direction he started going, every time he made a step forward, it was three steps back. Why would I go and meet with these guys? It's just going to be frustrating. They're just going to sit around. I've got to go hear Peter and his loud mouth. Matthew's going to be over there trying to count money and figure out where we're at because our treasurer is gone. You got John. Oh, who knows what John's going to do? He's just a teenager. He's just going to be whining all the time. Why do I want to go hang out with him? All it does is frustrate me. All these, do, these people frustrate me. I don't want to be around these people anymore. I'm frustrated. I'm just going to cause frustrated. No point in gathering together. I'll go my separate ways. I'll figure it out. Maybe it was apathy. Maybe he just didn't care anymore. Maybe he was at the point where he's like, all that I thought of didn't matter anyway. I thought I would die with Jesus. That didn't happen. I thought Jesus would be this political leader that would overthrow the Roman government. That didn't happen. So why even matter? Why care? I'm just going to go over here. I'm going to indulge myself in some desires. I'm going to try to do something to take my mind off of it. I'm, going to do, I'm, just, going to, I'm just going to become apathetic to the whole situation. Nothing I do is going to matter. Nothing I do is going to change anything. I'm just this little fisherman that I've always had to battle. I've always had people turning against me. I've always been one-upped. I'm not a leader. I'm just going to just go do my own thing. I'll figure something out. I'll go find a boat. I'll go start fishing in Greece or something. I don't know. Maybe apathy. Maybe it was just brokenhearted. He spent the last three years pouring everything he had 
into this group. Everything he had into this disciple, everything he had into this teacher, trying to absorb as much as he could from them. And the thought of gathering with them just broke his heart. He didn't want to go relive these memories because it would just make him sadder. He didn't want to go relive the glory days because it would just make him hurt. And he didn't want to hurt anymore. He had cried more in the last three days than he had ever before. He was so tired of it all because his heart was broken. He's burned out. He's ready to quit. You see, this this disappointment started making him question and doubt. And that doubt put him in a place where he didn't know where to go. It confused him enough that instead of reaching out, he went to isolation. And isolation fuels doubt. Look at verse 25. Just the first part. It says, So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. Now here's his, his best friends. I know with teenagers. Now I've worked with teenagers these last 20 years. So that's where a lot of my, my understanding comes from. But I know with teenagers, if a best friend tells them something, nine times out of ten, they're going to believe it from their best friend than any adult that ever said it. I can tell teenagers one thing and they will totally ignore me. But if their friend says it, right? Parents, y'all have done this trick. So teenagers in the room, I'm a, you know, this is a trick. Sorry, parents. I'm going to reveal it. If a parent wants a teenager to do something, the parent will go to the responsible friend and tell the responsible friend what to do to tell the friend, tell their daughter or son to get it done. Because that teenager will listen to a teenager. That's why I preach to the teenagers, you need to be the leaders in the school, not the adults. If you want to spread the gospel, you spread the gospel in the school. Quit waiting on an adult to get to it. Stand up and go where you're at. Because they will listen to teenagers. So this kind of perplexed me. When I looked at this, I was like, Thomas didn't even listen to his friends. Didn't even listen to his friends. That tells me that he was in a deep depression. That tells me he was in a place that it was just deep and dark and he didn't want to be pulled out. He didn't want to hear it. He didn't want to listen. Because that's what isolation does to you. I've been guilty of that. I've been guilty where I've been frustrated and I've pushed people away. When I start doubting things and I I feel like I can't say it out loud, I don't feel like I can talk to them because if I talk to them about my doubts, then that's going to lead them down. Then I'm guilty because I've led them astray. I might as well, I'm strong enough to deal with it on my own. I'm strong enough to get through these doubts on my own. I'm strong enough to do it on my own. I don't need anybody else. I don't care what anybody else says. I can do it. And that's wrong. We see this here. Thomas would not even listen to his friends. Thomas would not even hear the good news of Jesus being risen from the dead. They saw Jesus. He didn't have to listen to the Pharisees who were saying that 
by this time that somebody stole the body. They didn't have to hear about, oh, it was just the wrong tomb. No, it's his friend saying, Thomas, look at me right here. I went to the grave. I saw the tomb. It was empty. Then Jesus stood before me. I saw his hands. I saw his side. It happened. And his response is, I don't believe you. He called them a liar. He called his friends a liar. And in fact, he went a step further and said to the next verse, he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now, isolation fuels the doubt. And, and let me tell you that doubt is not wrong. Okay? Some people will argue with me. I've got friends that will argue with me. But I believe doubt is not wrong. I don't believe doubt is a sin. I believe doubt is a reaction. But one scholar put it well. He said, when doubt becomes stubbornness and it becomes a lifestyle, then it will harm your faith. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to have those moments of questioning what's going on around you. Doubt allows you to get to the truth. One, another scholar said it's kind of like doubt is when you're walking. And you can either take a step forward or you can take a step back. But you're at a moment where you've got to figure out which direction to go. And what Satan and the devil and all his things, what he wants you to do is he wants you to freeze. Because if you're not moving in any direction, then you're not moving and you're not doing anything. But doubting is not a bad thing. And, but we don't need to be in isolation for that because it will fuel us. The isolation will get us to the point where it becomes a lifestyle. And I've seen that in, the, in this last year. Some of you listening, and I appreciate you tuning in to us on these social medias. We do a lot of effort to make sure you can hear the message and stay with us and stay connected with us. We are so glad that you do that. But you have sensed the isolation fueling you. You haven't been back to the building. You haven't been back to the community. And I know some of you can't because of health reasons, but some of you can. And you wonder why you're doubting more? Is because you're continuing to isolate yourself. You're pushing people away. And that isolation will fuel the doubt. But the, this is the breakthrough moment when Thomas makes that claim. When he tells his friends, unless I see the hands, I put my hand in that side, I will not believe. That was a moment of thanksgiving for them because he doubted out loud. See, when isolation fuels it, the way to get out of it is you got to doubt out loud. You got to talk it out. You got to get back in that community and you got to talk it out. That's why we push going and finding a Sunday school group, finding a discipleship group, finding a community group, find a group of people that you can gather around and ask questions. That has always been a priority in my ministry. When I'm working with teenagers or working with anyone, I want to create a space that you can ask any question that you want to ask. I'm not going to turn down any question that comes to me. 
Because I believe that you need to doubt out loud. That's what I has worked in my life. When I start doubting, I got to go find friends and talk it out. Kind of a funny moment for doubt that is, I'm, if you didn't know, I am a huge Clemson football fan. Clemson fan, okay? If you didn't know that, now you do. And this year has not been great. Even though we won 10 games, hadn't been a great year, but it's beside the point. But we lost two of our, our coordinators. We've lost two of our, our coaches. And, you know, I've had a lot of doubts in, in the team. And I've doubted out loud a lot. So this year, make sure you, you, you tell my wife you've been praying for her. She's tired of hearing about my doubts with the hires and the coaching and all that and the changes. But I doubt out loud. That's just that's how I'm wired. I do a lot of doubting out loud. And that's why when I, when I get isolated and I, don't, and I try to push community away... I get deeper and deeper down into my own thoughts and my own analyze, uh, when I analyze everything. It's when I have to doubt out loud and when I ask questions and when I find people I trust and I find that group. And that's why it's important to come back to community and doubt out loud. Share your frustrations. Trust me, you are not the only one frustrated in this moment. You're not the only one. You're not the only one having a good day. Share it. But doubt out loud. Because doubting is that natural response to find truth. And that's what we're trying to seek. That's what we're always trying to seek. Thomas was always trying to seek the truth. That's why he looked at Jesus and said, where is the way? Where are you going? And Jesus proclaims, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Meaning, I am the way to find truth so you can find life. You want truth? Seek it out. It's not just going to come and land on your, land on your feet. I wish it was like that. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes something falls into your lap and you're like, man, that just is revelation. But there's other times you got to seek it out. My own life, it's been that way where I have doubted out loud and I ask questions. I loved my seminary experience because the first day of seminary, I'll never forget the, the professor of theology getting into our orientation group and saying, our goal is to make you pull out every one of your beliefs from your bag, look at it, and decide what you want to do with it. Our goal is to make you see if you need to put more things in your bag or take some things out. It's not wrong to look inside yourself and figure out what you truly believe. It's not wrong to question things. It's not wrong to seek the truth. What's wrong is when you seek the truth in different places that are not about Jesus and love and grace. It's wrong to seek the truth in people that are not very wise and things that are not very wise. A lot of people like to seek truth in alcohol and drugs and bad relationships. That's where they try to seek the truth. Or they seek the truth in these other avenues that are not the best for them. Thomas doubted out loud and he even, but he kept it focused on Jesus. 
y'all pick that up too? When I see the hands of Jesus, when I see the sides of Jesus, when I can feel Jesus, I will believe. He was still seeking truth through Jesus. And that's the only path you can have. We are broken people. If you don't think you're broken, you're broken. I hate to bust your bubble, but you are broken. And you need a Savior. You need someone to guide you on the right path. And some of these other ways are not the way. Buddha is not the way. Allah is not the way. Paganism and crystals and zodiac signs is not the way. The way is Jesus Because Jesus cares about you. Jesus came to this earth as a baby, lived this life full, just like you. Went through every temptation you went through, did everything. But he went to the cross for you. He didn't take his disciples with you. These other leaders take disciples with them to die. But Jesus said, I will pay the price. But I'm not going to stay dead. I'm going to rise up. I'm going to show people. And he said it multiple times before it happened that he is going to bring hope to people because he defeats death. He defeats sin. He defeats brokenness. It's through his life that we can be free. And we can overcome doubt. You're going to have more doubts. But it's the hope of the resurrected Jesus that when you have doubts, you can find peace. That's what makes him the Prince of Peace. It's not that he's a political figure that's going to bring a leader and take off peace into the world. No, peace is in your heart where at the end of the day when chaos is going on around you, you can go, I got Jesus and I'm okay. Right? Peace is in the middle when there's a loud noise going on and a baby is sleeping soundly. That's peace. Peace is when there's multiple chaos in the room and you see that teacher that's with that kid and they got it. And they're oblivious to things around them because they've got that peace. When they're holding the baby and holding it tight and it's falling asleep in your arms, it doesn't matter what goes on, there's peace. Jesus brings you peace in the moment of chaos. I'm so thankful that this past year I had Jesus because in the middle of the chaos of this year of all the news, all the different things coming at us, I had Jesus to hold on to. I had people I could go talk to. I could doubt out loud and not feel judged. And I'm going to tell you the best place you can doubt out loud is in a church, in your small group, in your Sunday school, because that's what it's meant for, for you to doubt out loud where you're not judged. Go on the internet and start doubting out loud, you're going to get judged. Go, on to, the, go to a restaurant and doubt out loud, trust me, you're going to be judged. This is the only safe place you can doubt out loud. So find your safe place among Christians that's focused on Jesus because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, the greatest statement of, of the whole New Testament comes out of Thomas's mouth. After Jesus comes to him, doors are locked. Jesus comes to them again. He says, Thomas, here I am. Put your hand in my side. Thomas sees him, doesn't touch him, and proclaims, my Lord and my God. Everybody else in the John, I looked it up. They claimed Jesus as the Lord. They claimed him as our Lord, as the Christ, as the Messiah. 
Thomas, old Jewish boy that grew up knowing the Ten Commandments, you shall not have any other gods before me, for I am a jealous God. He sits down and exclaims, Jesus, my Lord, meaning my master, the one I'm going to follow, the one I'm going to continue going to, my ride or die, I'm going no matter what. My Lord and my God. It's the greatest theological statement of the entire New Testament. No other disciple makes this statement. Paul makes it later on, and that's way after that Jesus has been ascended to heaven when he's talking to another church. But it's Thomas. He proclaims that it's my Lord and my God because, see, doubt brings your real identity. His real identity was no longer in his frustrations. His identity was no longer in his background. His identity was no longer in what his beliefs were or what his creeds were or what his prayers were. His identity was in Jesus because he said, Jesus is my God. He claimed him as his own. He didn't say, Jesus, you are my father's. He said, no, Jesus, you are my God, the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the God of my ancestors. You are the God of the creator of the world. You are the master, the savior. You are my Lord and my God. See, doubt makes you claim it for your own. A lot of us like to hold on to our other people's thoughts. We like to read other preachers and we'll hold on to that other person's theology. Or we like to read people of dead, dead people that wrote books and they were good books, but we want to hold on to that theology. It's not until we wrestle with our own theology that we become a real identity in Christ. See, I'm going to tell you that you can, you can sing any song you want to, you can say any creed you want to, but unless you discover Jesus as your Lord and your God, or as Jesus as my Lord and my God, until you can make that statement, then that's not your faith. That's not your real identity. You can play church all day long. You can play with what you want to do, and you can play with your faith. But at the end of the day, you've got to say, Jesus, you're my Lord and my God. Which means I have dug in deep. I have looked at everything of my faith. And through my doubt, I have sought answers. And I'm not seeking answers from other people. I'm not looking for someone else to tell me what to say, what to do, what to believe. I believe what I believe because I saw it. I didn't let doubt become a lifestyle for me. I didn't let my my skepticism become a lifestyle for me. I didn't become a cynic because I listened to these other people. No, I'm looking at Jesus. I'm finding community. When doubt leads you to discover something new, then it becomes real. So don't let doubt keep you from seeing Jesus. See Jesus through your doubt. See, this greatest confession, this is, this is the climax of John's gospel, the good news that John was trying to give. You see, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All right? Verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's the whole purpose of the gospel. The whole purpose of the gospel is for you to see Jesus, for you to find Jesus, for you to put your faith in Jesus, not some church, not some theology, but in Jesus. You find him through the scriptures by reading this statement of faith by Thomas, by discovering that he is your God and your Lord. Jesus is the son of God that came down, died for your sins, 
so that you can live free to bridge that gap, to bring that connection back to Him. And it's our goal, once we discover that, once we proclaim it, we don't hide it anymore. It says Thomas spoke it out. So we got to speak it out. We got to speak it out that Jesus is my Lord and my God because we are living a life for Jesus. We are creating a faith leading to life. On that day, Thomas was a new creation. Just like Paul says in first Corinthians, through the letter to the Corinthians that you will become a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Did he have doubts? I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. We're going to have doubts. But that doubt is just there to get you deeper in your faith and deeper in your identity. Your identity should not be in the news channel you watch or a party you affiliate with or a social media presence. Your identity should be in Jesus. We've come to a time where we're going to be able to sing that. Mike and Retta are going to come up and they're going to lead us in a hymn. And I think it's He is Lord. What a way to proclaim this statement. So maybe this is an opportunity for you to reclaim this, that you've been doubting and you've been going through some things, but maybe this is the time you stand up and say, you are my Lord and my God. You will get me through this tough time. Maybe that's what needs to happen. Maybe you haven't made that claim at all. And if you're listening to us by Facebook, YouTube, or any other social media, please email us. Find us. We will love to talk to you about how we can show you a life and faith in Jesus. And maybe you need to come forward and say, I've been neglecting the community. And I need to be here. And I need to rejoin that community. Maybe it says, I'll be up front. You need to talk. Let's pray. Father, you're so gracious and loving. We don't deserve to be able to call you our Lord and our God, but you allow us to because you want our fellowship. You want us to be free in you. Lord, help our doubts. As though there are those that are doubting many things, but I pray that you deliver a statement to them tonight. Hear a voice, see someone, but they hear and feel your presence to know that that doubt is okay and it's just, you just want them to seek deeper. A deeper meaning to whatever's going on in their life. Be with all of us here. Guide us in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 